On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents We Do Our Own Stunts, we jump ahead to 1974 in the storied Shaw Brothers studio for The Golden Lotus. It's not a kung fu film, but it does have plenty of action, so let's go. Welcome to We Do Our Own Stunts, a podcast about the life and work of martial arts superstar Jackie Chan. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as usual, is the world's deadliest man, Liam O'Donnell. How you doing today, Liam? You know what, Doug? I'm fine. It's it is what it is. Life exists. <laughs> we might all we might all die of a mild flu. Who knows what's going on? The world is crazy, but at least at least we've got this Jackie Chan podcast where we have this. This solid point, this rock in the storm, Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. and in and in focusing on Jackie Chan, we will never be taken into <laughs> seedy, uncomfortable, awkward, possibly terrible waters. Right. One of the greatest things about investigating the life and work of actor uh, Jackie Chan is that there's such a consistency to his work. Yeah. You never have yeah. to worry about something that could be theoretically unpleasant or. Uh, completely baffling to our Western point of view, uh, and that's what's really that's that's reassuring because we've had such a difficult time in some of our other podcasts. But here, yeah. that's not a concern. Uh, uh, we, I don't think we'll ever watch something totally unwatchable. Uh, note though about today's episode, I haven't hmm. watched this movie. Doug, what is it again? It's the Golden Lotus. Liam? Oh, no! (laughs) Uh, For those of uh, you listening, and this is probably a majority, who have no idea what we're (laughs) referring to or talking about or why we seem to be taking this ironic tone to everything that we're saying so far, it's because The Golden Lotus is, as I referred to it in the opening, it's not a kung fu movie, uh, which is is not unreasonable for those who are a little more intimately – knowledgeable about Shaw Brothers Studio, you'll know that they made all sorts of genres of films. They made horror films. They made dramas. They also made, I guess, what you would refer to as softcore pornography, Liam? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so the issue is yes, um, whether something qualifies as soft or hardcore really isn't uh, up to us. It's, it's up to the culture that produced it. So mm. upon my standards of how pornography is, this is the softest of softcore, <laughs> right? This is this is even, you know, uh, except for one particularly ridiculous scene. This is an R-rated movie. Yes, one scene is not so much visually um, upsetting or titillating, however you feel about it, mm-hmm. but uh, but it does suggest something that I believe, especially at this time, if you had suggested in a uh, Hollywood film, you would not be able to show that film publicly. Probably you are correct. It does go to places that I... If actually, because the movie up to that point, even though there was a lot of sexuality in it, uh, was comparatively to movies in the year 2020, was comparatively tame, that particular scene sort of took me by surprise. I was not expecting to see something that I wouldn't normally see in a Hollywood movie. Uh, yeah, I, especially because I'm not quite sure um, what the eroticism of that scene was. Um, <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to imagine the kink to which that mm. appeals. Uh, but then again, maybe it was meant for humor. I will have to admit, I have no clue. Because this movie, it, it does have nudity. It has topless, so it shows boobs, but not pachinas. <laughs> Jesus. What are you, 12? 
<laughs> Look, I'm just trying to be as mature as our audience here on this episode. Yeah. Uh, we'll, by the way, I, obviously we're talking very vaguely, but we're going to get into more detail after the break in regards to all of the hardcore smut in the movie The Golden Lotus from the year 1974. Uh, yes, smut and ghosts and uh, domestic violence. Yeah, lots of domestic violence. Very boring intrigue. <laughs> Well, I mean, we're we are again, we're going to talk about all that boring intrigue in some detail. But before we get to that, Liam, one of the things that's kind of interesting about us discussing the Golden Lotus today is now we've podcasted a lot, you and I have, and uh, lately more than probably either of us are very comfortable with. But one of the topics that we've never really gotten into is eroticism, Liam. Mm. Eroticism and cinema. And that's something, I think that is a fun introductory topic. Uh, just about the idea of, so we watch a lot of exploitation movies and they usually have some sort of sexual element within them. Um, and uh, for someone watching it from a modern perspective, do, do you have sometimes have trouble squaring your more modern perspective on relationships and sexuality with uh, some of the more dated aspects of sexuality in a lot of these movies. Oh yeah. They, uh, for me, um, a certain kind of erotic film from a certain era works purely on a humor level. And if it's not funny, I'm not entertained Hmm. because they don't turn me on. I don't understand the various compunctions that they're messing with. You know, they, I don't connect with them on any sort of way. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure when I was younger and we've talked about this on the show a bunch, which is when you are unable, you know, for, for younger listeners, me and Doug are both (laughs) old enough. Mm -hmm. There was a time we couldn't just log onto a computer and see anal. Like that was not a thing that you just were like, I got some time. I have access to the internet. What's a crazy sex thing I can just see within a matter of seconds that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so any opportunity to see nudity, let alone the suggestion of sexuality, was like someone was opening a door for you, right? But since then, two things have changed. One, uh, the internet has made all manner of compunction available. There is nothing which you could not watch a film of if you did, if you were willing to spend the time to find exactly what you want. Sure. And then two, I've had sex. Hmm. So, you know, those two big monumental changes in the culture <laughs> <laughs> at large. All of these side. happening in the last five years or so, both of these <laughs> Yeah, things. sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, the, the, suddenly, um, the, the way that these films denying you something while pretending to offer it to you, i.e., not giving you the, the the full exposure of pornography, which I think for some people is a turnoff. That that, that actually fully seeing the thing for the thing doesn't turn them off. <laughs> um, but actually the way these films suggest to you the thing without actually giving you the thing, that, that for a lot of people that was a big turn on. And for me as a kid, I could see the appeal of it, though in some cases that was tainted by misogyny or was tainted by... Um, the producers thinking something was attractive that I found not attractive at all. Uh, that, that sort of reality now as an adult, I don't really need that. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't really need that in my life. And so I have trouble connecting unless it's part of something else. So, um, sometimes erotic thrillers are fun and interesting tight movies, even if the sexuality of it is no longer tantalizing for me or, 
maybe the main actress or, you know, if, if I was not straight, maybe actor, but, you know, for whatever you're into, maybe the person in the performance is a turn on for you, even if the content of the film isn't, you know what I mean? So, I, like, I could see watching a, a sexual thriller with, like, Jennifer Connelly still being interesting because I like Jennifer Connelly. But the film itself, the <laughs> way it suggests and whatever, without ever crossing a line, it's like, I don't I don't need that. You know what I mean? I'd rather just watch a, a good movie with Jennifer Connelly in it, honestly, or any other actress I find physically attractive, I, I'd rather appreciate their... You'd rather acting. watch career opportunities in that scene where she's on the uh, mechanical horse. Uh, is that... What's the movie where she's on the horse? That's the, that's a Dennis Hopper movie, right? No, no, it's career opportunities, isn't it? The the one where she's in the mall or something? I thought... Ones? Oh, is that right? I, I'm thinking of the movie, the Dennis Hopper movie she's in, where she's on the beach. Well... Beach or horse, I think we're all thinking about Jennifer Connelly now. Now, one thing I want to make clear before we get into the movie proper is uh, both Liam and I do not have a, even though I think we both have watched a lot of martial arts movies and maybe even uh, uh, our own share of Shaw Brothers movies, the specific kind of material we're going to be talking about today and its historical relevance is something that we are probably going to get wrong in probably substantial ways. Now, The Golden Lotus is an adaptation of a book called Jinping Mei, and again, please forgive my pronunciation. And that book dates back to 1610, at least the first printing of it. So we're talking about kind of a formative, um, it, erotic novel, uh, maybe in the form of something like Fanny Hill or, you know, you know landmark erotic um, British and American novels that, that have been kind of adapted again and again. And this novel has had its place in kind of Chinese history and has been adapted again and again. And The Golden Lotus is one of those adaptations. And I think is generally regarded as a pretty strong adaptation, though whether we responded positively to it uh, will be revealed after the first break. But I just want to make that clear before we get into it. Um, having read a little bit about Jinping Mei, uh, it does seem like this adaptation at least has all the broad strokes of the plot of that. But in terms of how it actually captures some of those elements, one of the things that novel uh, is uh, best known for is, of course, its frank depiction of sex. Uh, apparently, um, the, there's 72 detailed sexual episodes within that <laughs> within that work. Uh, with thankfully, the, the the movie tones down a little bit. But we'll get that into uh, in, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Liam, I did want to talk about before we took our break. We haven't really talked about the Shaw brothers yet. Uh, in in our first episode, uh, Jackie, of course, probably uh, makes his Jackie will will find his greatest fame initially in Golden Harvest Productions in the late seventies. But uh, he bounced back between both of the studios at this time period, both as a stuntman and in this movie as a performer. What are your kind of general thoughts about the Shaw brothers and? Is, do you have a preference between Golden Harvest and Shaw Brothers or Shaw Brothers and independent films of that time? Or do you really not have a, a strong feeling one way or the other? I mean, for me, I have much more exposure to the Shaw Brothers. And hmm. uh, that was that was the studio whose films were most often on TV on like a Kung Fu Saturday. That's what I'm seeing as the Shaw Brothers. Interesting. You know what I mean? Um, and the, the later on when I was trying to rediscover – martial arts it was more shaw brothers films that i would find that were classic whereas i whereas i associate golden harvest with some later films uh both jackie chan and sammo hung i think 
of as Golden Harvest sort of standby. You know what I mean? It's just a matter of exposure in my life where I just happen to see a lot of the Golden Harvest, like later 70s, uh, 80s stuff, you know? And so uh, I don't. The, the issue for me with the Shaw Brothers, though, even though I feel way more familiar with them, um, the scope of the amount of film that they put out and mm-hmm. its impact on the genre is so beyond me. Right. I would I would ask people to check out. We specifically did a Shaw Brothers episode of Cinepunks uh, with a gentleman named Joe who is good friends with Josh, who's just like the man when it comes to martial arts films. He just knows everything about everything, just total knowledge and sitting down to talk with to him about two Shaw Brothers films I had never even heard of. I did not even know they existed. Sure. And him able to get into why they mattered and how they impacted the genre and how they affected other filmmakers as well as rappers, which, like, as you know, part of my connection to martial arts is because of the influence of martial arts on um, hip-hop culture. Of course. Like, it, it's like... I clearly realize I know nothing. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's, you know, someone might be the biggest, to make a musical reference that you won't care about, someone <laughs> might be the biggest sick of it all fan in the world, but that has a band that had a wider influence. Once you start getting into the genre that they thought they were a part of, you realize there's a million smaller bands that, that you would have never found unless you, like, really dug. I think that's how it is just with that one studio, let alone the independent. In fact, I'm almost 100% sure the only independent films I know well from that era were because of Wu-Tang Clan. If it wasn't for Wu-Tang Clan telling me to check out certain films, I would not have ever checked them out. I would not have found them or known about them. You know what I mean? So I um, I think inevitably my focus tends to be Shaw because of that cultural impact but that's i think partly based on the fact that i haven't gotten to do the deep dive you know compared to a normal person i've seen way more martial arts films but compared to people who i think are really steeped in the genre i'm still such a novice you know that i'm still figuring it out it's why it's kind of exciting to um take this sort of path through jackie chan's career because we are getting exposed to things look this is not a movie i would have seen otherwise and i am a big shot brothers fan but this just isn't a genre that i would normally seek out so we we were we're getting kind of a wider scope a shot scope you might say <laughs> uh on on some of the other films that they were producing at that time period and whether we're enjoying them or not um, it's still the case where I feel like it's giving us a better appreciation. It's kind of funny. I came at it kind of in the opposite direction from you. My initial experience with martial arts movies outside of the 1980s and kind of mainstream U.S. martial arts, like like ninja movies and things like that, when it hit the 90s, it was almost all Golden Harvest. It was going back to older Jackie Chan movies and Sammo Hung movies and, and movies from the late 70s and early 80s. And when I saw bits and pieces of Shaw Brothers movies... I couldn't get into them because the kind of stage-bound nature, the way that they looked, especially because I was watching kind of, you know pan and scanned versions of all of these movies, so they looked a little strange anyway. I just couldn't really find my way into them. I think I needed to kind of develop an appreciation. And then one day, I picked up a VHS copy of Master Killer, a.k.a. Enter the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, mm. and that turned it all around for me. I watched that over and over and over, that VHS tape. And, you know, again, uh, pan and scan, dubbed, uh, a crappy quality print, but it all came through, and it's like it unlocked my appreciation. Then I just was uh, ravenous for, well, like, Chang Chae films, and really just any martial arts from Shaw Brothers I could find. 
I just think anyone who wants to anyone who wants to say that Thirty Six Chambers isn't top ten martial arts films of all time is just some 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 obscure loving curmudgeon who wants to you know piss off people you know what i mean like it i don't care if it's the most obvious thanks to wu-tang but like between 36 chambers and eight diagram pole fighter like you know what i mean like that's that's a whole world to talk about you know what i mean like i don't know i i just that movie is just such an important film not just i think to us as fans but i think to people across the world who like the genre um and people even who discovered it because of the the work of of certain hip-hop groups you know but man that movie is just unbelievable plus side note i keep referencing wu-tang but since you specifically said the english title master killer i have to also name check uh new york hardcore slash metal band marauder whose song master killer and subsequent video is was very important to me in the 90s and I, I'll, I'll be 100 honest when i watched I actually, because of a friend, got to watch Thirty Six Chambers, uh, the the subtitle version before I watched the dubbed renamed Master Killer. Oh, interesting! And I, and I thought they were different things. So then I started watching Master Killer, like yeah, like the Marauder song, and I was like, oh, it's Thirty Six Chambers. Okay, I know what this is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, at that time, this was was uh, still before the internet kind of had wide availability. You know, my knowledge about martial arts movies was just taken from bits and pieces from books I was reading and things like that. So Master Killer, for me, that's what it was, right? I, when I heard Enter the 36 Chamber of Shaolin, I, I wouldn't have connected it to that movie until I read a plot summary or something like that. So it was a case. Now, I, I have a, a kind of a great appreciation for Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest. They really do deliver different things. They even have a completely different style of choreography. And it, that's another thing that people, I think, sometimes have difficulty adjusting to is the more... Um, dance-like choreography of the Shaw Brothers martial arts movies compared to Golden Harvest. I mean, they both have a very kind of acrobatic style and a very... um, They don't reflect reality necessarily, but you can definitely tell the kind of choreography uh, was different than, say, the mid-70s Shaw Brothers movies and the late 80s... Sorry, the late 70s, early 80s Golden Harvest, though they did kind of coalesce around that time period in the early 80s before Shaw Brothers uh, pretty much uh, gave up the, the goat in terms of making films. But we're going to get to talk about those sort of things when we're talking about martial arts movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to think about martial arts movies. We're here talking about Jackie Chan. Now, the movie we're going to talk about after our break today is The Golden Lotus. It is, for all intents and purposes, and there's a lot of caveats here, Jackie Chan's first acting performance in a feature film. Except not at all. Because for one thing, we did Master with Cracked Fingers last time, um, uh, which was a film that was made a few years before this one. But of course, that had a strange kind of small release, didn't really get released until well into the 70s. There also, Jackie did a bunch of, of acting as a child, uh, appeared in some Shaw Brothers films as a child, in fact. But, you know, in terms of a adult performance... With role with like actual lines and with an actual uh, role behind it, this is generally considered Jackie Chan's first movie. Uh, how, how how much does he actually appear in it? What happens to his character? We're gonna get into all of that after our break. Let's take that now. When we come back, the Golden Lotus.
Shi Manqing woos a beautiful woman, Pan Qinlin, and they murder Pan's husband together. However, the adulterer and adulteress don't get to share a wonderful life after their crime. It's the Golden Lotus from the year 1974, in fact released in Hong Kong on the 17th of January 1974. As I've already mentioned, this is based on a, uh, a, a, a I guess you would call it a novel, a Chinese novel from around 1600 called Jin Mingpei, which is translated to both the plum in the golden vase or the golden lotus. This is directed by um, uh, Richard Lee Han Xing, uh, who was a very prolific uh, director for both Shaw Brothers and I think elsewhere. Yeah, probably best known for a film that he made in 1965 called Zhi Shi. Again, I, I apologize for the pronunciation. I, again, I also apologize for anything we might get wrong on this episode. If you do want to do some corrections for us, if you want to send us some feedback, please do so. It's W-D-O-O-S. We do our own stunts at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Liam, I'm going to guess that this was your first experience with The Golden Lotus. Oh, 100%. This is a film I had never even heard of, let alone the storied history behind it, the, the, the impact of the novel. Though I will say, watching the film, I think if you've watched enough films, you will be able to pick up after the first act that this has to be based off a book. Yeah. Just, just There's no logical way to explain what's happening other than this is a property the directors assume you have some familiarity with, but not enough that they don't do a little bit of work trying to explain what's happening. You know, we talked a little bit about Golden Harvest and Shaw Brothers before the break, and one of the differences between, and I don't want to, you know, just say in general that it's always like this, but one of the differences between the films those two studios were putting out is that Shaw Brothers films always felt like more uh, planned out productions. There's a there's you know a, a tale maybe apocryphal that a lot of Golden Harvest films in the late seventies they were kind of making up the story as they went along and you can kind of feel that in some of their plots which just you know a lot of them are very similar a lot of them uh, take go off in weird tangents this feels like they knew exactly the sort of story that they were telling because they were doing an adaptation but that also means that the film has this very strange structure where the first half is one tale. And then the second half is like a different story. And that second half sometimes zooms ahead by years and all these plot things happen in a couple of minutes before things slow down again. It uh, it was a very odd watch for me because of my lack of familiarity with the source material. What did you think of the movie overall, Liam? <laughs> I, I think I have to put a... I mean, you've been doing this work, but let me co-sign what you've already been doing which is there's some caveat to be made we're not familiar with the book the book has a huge cultural impact i mean if you watched any number of films either about uh the work of marquis de sade mm -hmm. or about him as a person your immediate response might be why does anyone care about this you know what i mean um and so for me i'm as someone who's not in the culture, who was unfamiliar with this part of the culture, who has no experience with it, who actually has four semesters of East Asian history and we never talked about this book. Like there, there's a lot of ways that I am alienated from this. Sure. And so I want any criticism I have to come with a little bit of a pinch of salt. That being said, this was almost unwatchable in the, whole movie which is a very long movie the only part that was at all endearing was that this guy sucks that's it <laughs> that's not enough to carry a film for me uh again if i felt differently about the historicity and importance of this <laughs> text i'd probably feel a little bit different but for me it's not sexy it's not interesting it 
many times as boring and it doesn't have there's there there is a comeuppance but the comeuppance is not in a way that's satisfying for me so i just ended up feeling bad it's i mean you're right this character is kind of a strange character to have a movie center around because while he is presented in some manner as pathetic he's also it's a, there's also a strong suggestion that he's more of a man than any other male character that we see in the movie and in fact they go out of their way to insult and mock the other male characters in the movie whether it be uh Pan Chin Lin the who who's kind of the female central character of the first half of the movie her husband is a dwarf who sells pancakes, I guess, in this town. And the kids in the town just mock him mercilessly. Uh, and, and it's just like he's presented as particularly pathetic. And then, uh, you know, there's another character and her husband is a drunk and uh, seems to be completely unaware about anything that's going on. And we have another character who's a doctor and he uh, is unable to perform sexually. I mean, even though Shi Men Ching's character is... Um, is is really kind of a sad and pathetic person in a lot of ways. He also is someone I think that we're supposed to not admire, but maybe have kind of a certain jealousy about because all anyone seems to know about him or care about is the fact that he can perform so well sexually. The women in like his concubines, they're all obsessed with him because he's so good at sex. Like that's their deal, right? They're literally hanging outside his uh his chambers and and writhing in ecstasy at the idea of him having sex with them and i mean it's it's i mean <laughs> i i want to suggest that the movie wants to have it both ways yes it, it wants to tantalize you with his unbridled sexuality in a culture in which uh ironically it's considered more sexy for these women to be barely stoked on it like they want to have sex but then their performance of sexuality is all about pretending like it's very pleasurable that they're not having a good time you know like being there it's not it's not like american porn where everyone's screaming and acting like every smack is like the most exciting thing they've ever had <laughs> their performance of sexuality is about being restrained and his performance of sexuality is about being uh fully enough going as fast and as crazy as he wants to go and not being concerned for the well-being of the person that he's having sex with that's his sexuality and the film wants that to be tantalizing for the audience it also wants to be a morality tale i think the point of the movie is that he sucks and that he he paid the price for his badness but i think it's a morality tale only to sneak in all the fucking that right. i think that the movie feels like for whatever social pressures, which again, we're in Hong Kong. It's not quite the pressures. It might be in, in, in mainland China, maybe, sure, I don't of course. Know. but there are pressures on them. And I think in order to appeal to a broader, uh, diaspora audience, the film has to end with him getting the, the, the whatever. But from what we read about the book, that's not dissimilar from the book. I mean, the book yeah. has, you know, 70-some whatever uh, fuck scenes, and then he's got to end the movie with the bad karma, or the book, rather, with the bad karma. So clearly the book is also like, here's all these hot stories, but don't worry, he gets it in the end. You know, it's it's this way of saying you can have satisfaction as long as you also have some sort of moral reprisal at the end. You know what I mean? And yeah. so that that's, I think, where the movie is so confusing they, in order for him to be hot and the audience to be into it, he has to be the only viable male on screen. There's never another man 
in the whole movie who doesn't have some deep flaw. But it also has to end in a way that's like, yeah, he was a bad guy who got what he deserved, which is like a weird mixed message to give the audience. There's also, I mean, I do at least think that the movie is aware of his hypocrisy, especially when it comes to the fact that he can go out and cavort and have relationships with any woman married or not that he encounters while his his concubines are at home. And there's one sequence where uh, one of these women has been accused of having an affair or sleeping with a man that wasn't him, and he just whips her mercilessly. And, of course, how ridiculous that is when I think, you know, just in the scene before he was trying to woo his neighbor's wife, that sort of thing, right? But well, that I mean, the same m- woman watched him have sex with her handmaiden. Yes, that's true. I mean, again, it's there's a... <laughs> there's there's a complex uh, a weaving of morality on display here. Now, I do want to talk about the fact that the movie does have sort of two uh, kind of halves uh, and, and two kind of different stories that they're telling here. The first one's kind of simplistic. In fact, it's very easy to sort of follow. Basically, this lead character, Shai Men Ching, this... this uh, um, Gigolo, this, he's very rich, very powerful, uh, has all of these wives already, but he becomes obsessed with Pan Chin Lin, who is the wife of this pancake seller in town. And he, um, a local brothel owner, um, helps him. He kind of uh, pays her to help him uh, hook those two up. So she, you know, gets the woman to come to her place under the guise of sewing her like a funeral shroud. And then she invites this guy up and puts them in a situation where they're together. And he basically, um, and I don't, I don't want to underplay this at all because basically every time he makes a pass at a woman in this movie, it is absolutely sexual assault and very much just about rape. But it's one of those movie things where he will, have sex with a woman or force himself upon them, and then they will both give in and then become obsessed with him afterwards. It's really unpleasant to watch. I I don't think there was any time where this might be pleasant to watch, but I don't think the movie takes necessarily a moral stance on that. It's just one of those terrible movie things. But So he makes this connection with this character, uh, but there's also another character outside, a pear seller, played by Jackie Chan, and he alerts this pancake seller that his wife is having an affair, it gets a little bit confusing. So the he sets up, uh, the pair seller sets up a situation where the husband can confront them as they're having sex. He goes in with a big butcher knife, but uh, gets punched by Shi uh, Men Ching, who, which makes the already pathetic pancake seller, makes him fall ill. And basically he gets poisoned by his wife and Shi uh, Men Ching and the wife get married. And that leads into the second half where he brings her into his household and all of his concubines and sort of the relationships between them. But uh, is there anything that you want to say about that first half, Liam? Is there anything particularly that stands out? Well, if I didn't know it was from a book, it almost felt like two different movies because the way that first section ends, you feel like he's being forced to marry her. That if he had his way, he would just have sex with this woman and move on with his life. Right. Then he has to marry her because of the death. He's murdered her husband. Right. Only then they get to his house. He's got a whole house of wives. So why did not you just marry her in the first? Like the idea of the first part of the movie that he this is. Oh, no. Now he's got to marry her. What a bummer. You're like, well, I don't know. He's got a whole home full of random women he seduced. So I don't see what the big deal is. Um, and, And it seems weird. Liam, Liam is very much a believer of why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free. What I'm, I'm talking about the way the narrative functions. 
the movie suggests this is some poor result. Exactly. And then later on, he even denies marriage to another woman because mm-hmm. he is, I don't know, mad at her, disgusted with her, whatever it is. She's just waiting for him to show up and marry her, and he doesn't. And I'm like, well, then why did you have to marry this other? Like, I don't understand the morale, it, the idea that, well, I murdered your husband after we had sex, so now I must marry you. Doesn't feel real when there's this other lady who you've basically put in the same situation, and you're like, uh, yeah, I'll just leave her hanging. Like, the, it, it's not clear what's motivating him to make these decisions per se, and it's also not clear. It's not clear why his like. Yes, they all think he's a sexual, you know, dynamo, but it's still not entirely clear why all these wives put up with each other and with him necessarily, other than just a social thing. But even that yeah. doesn't seem totally clear, you know. Well, I mean, there is a, even within discussion amongst themselves, that they would never even dare risk trying to cheat on him because maybe either the social impact or the fact that, I mean, he obviously can beat the shit out of them without any trouble whatsoever. And um, just to give a a little capper on, and we'll talk about his character in a little more detail in a minute, Jackie Chan's character, the pear seller, he sets up this ability for the husband to discover the affair. Uh, Then he basically, (laughs) in just like seconds, right as the kind of transition point of the movie happens, um, he just gets stabbed to death and just killed by some thugs and and that's the end of his character entirely. It's even kind of confusing what's even happening for a second. It's like is that is that what's going on? It's it's kind of an even though the first half of the movie is a lot more um is a lot easier to kind of get a handle on, the second half of the movie has I think a lot more potential for intrigue because the idea of bringing in this new concubine and having this relationship between all of these wives, some of them have been there for a lot longer, some of them are fairly new, there's the jealousy that's within the groups and the kind of infighting, and I find that really interesting, and I find it so interesting because it was the topic of Zhang Yimou's Raise the Red Lantern from 1991, one of my favorite Chinese movies, and that focuses entirely on that kind of intrigue and does it really well and it's really interesting and it really does um, kind of uh, play into a lot of those really unique cultural elements. This movie treats it on a very superficial level, right? I mean, it's just that this woman comes in, she, after for some reason, she goes from being very demure and very kind of shy and as soon as she has sex with this dude and they get married, she becomes like super evil woman always in for herself, you know, really sketchy in all sorts of different ways. And it's about her trying to move up the ladder and trying to get closer to him all the time. It is really interesting, but what did you think about the second half of this film compared to the first? There wasn't a big change for me as far as my enjoyment of the film. (laughs) It just continued to be, okay, now we're in a new environment, there'll be new layers, (laughs) but it switched a lot to the him seducing his neighbor's wife and then the intrigue with her and then her death so that the other uh newer wife came in and out and it was just a there's a lot of different characters and it's not always clear what their relationships are and we're not getting a lot of Mm. uh explanation um and it's really hard to pay attention to and uh none of the sexiness is sexy 
even once for me the whole film so it's like I, i'm getting bored during the sex scenes and it was just hard to stay involved for the for the runtime of the film and, and then towards the end some interesting slash utterly insane things happen but not enough to justify all the stuff that came before and then it's just over it's it's so because of the narrative crux of the first half where you have only this handful of characters and we're really focusing almost entirely on this 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 guy this guy who is like a super sex machine he becomes sort of a secondary character in the second half even though he is still the person who's kind of pushing all the action forward you don't really at that point have a main character anymore and the film feels like it loses a lot of focus because of that um and, and like you said because we're never getting enough about any of the individual characters that have been introduced to us. Like, there's a suggestion that that one of the wives is older and has the ability to be like, you know, when he's whipping one of the women, can come in and it's like, give that up. Like, stop that right now. That's just not appropriate. And she has some power because she's been there so long. That's the kind of thing that, that I would have liked to have seen them explore in a little more detail. And perhaps in the novel, they do. Here, it's very much, oh, that's just another person. I, I Though it does kind of name them when they get introduced... I mean, they, they, there's something like seven or eight wives. I mean, it gets very confusing. Um, and at, at some point, you only can really focus on a couple of characters. And the other main character that gets introduced is this wife of a drunkard um, who then later gets uh, – she, she is married by our lead character. And uh, she is just, is just as kind of devious and obsessive as uh, Pan Chin Lin's character, the, the, the wife of the uh, pancake seller. And they have sort of even they come into conflict, though, not directly necessarily. But that's when things get really weird in the final 30 minutes or so. In fact, so much happens in the final 30 minutes. It's a little it would be a little bit strange even to be able to kind of summarize it. At one point, she has a kid and the kid dies. And at one point, she coughs up blood and tries to kill herself. And in the process of killing herself, then she uh, Ching comes in and beats the shit out of her. And but in that conversation, he gets a lot of sympathy and then he starts making out with her again. Like the combination of sex and violence here is pretty uncomfortable. I don't even understand why it's happening. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> you mentioned, Liam, that, that the sexuality in this you did not find very erotic. There's a real focus on Pan Chin Lin's feet in this movie. She has bound feet. And, um, and and obviously that's a, a controversial cultural aspect that's going on here. But they focus on it a lot in this movie. Her feet are supposed to be sexy as hell. But I do think from uh, whether it be our eyes as Westerners or our eyes as people in the year 2020, um, it's really kind of fucking weird, don't you think? It's very gross. It's very gross and uh, upsetting. I think it's the way, the way to put it. Uh, but that's not even the most upsetting thing in the movie. All right, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it happens in like the final 10 minutes of the movie. Up to this point, all the sex has been, I'm going to say very vanilla, even though that kind of downplays the fact that a lot of it resembles sexual assault. Basically, this dude can fuck whoever he wants without any problem. And then at one point in the movie, and let's, let's, Pan let's, let's, let's be clear too. Mm-hmm. He is almost always missionary positioning and jack and yes. jackrabbiting onto these women while they yes. just sort of go, ah, and it's like super gross. And also he takes these pills that are basically like uh, – <laughs> 
what, 600-year-ago Viagra, and he's not allowed to take too many, which, uh, which I mean, I, kudos to the movie. They set that up, and then they pay it off at the very end. But that's just one other thing. This dude loves fucking so much that he takes pills for it just so he can fuck in his spare time. So he's been having this vanilla sex the whole time, and we're like, okay, I get what this movie is about. Every once in a while, you see a breast or something like that. Near the end of the movie, Pan Chin Lin, she is sort of... She's jealous over him paying attention to one of the other wives. She's laying down in this sunny area, surrounded by fruit. He comes over. He starts to seduce her. Uh, they're having a little playful thing. He calls her a slut, which, I mean, whatever. And then what happens, Liam? Uh, and then he ties her up, and he makes the handmaiden watch while he throws fruit into her vagina. Yes. And you don't see it. Like, it's not explicit explicit but you know she's she's as naked as they can get away with and they make it really clear what's happening and it's Mm -hmm. not obvious to me whether this is supposed to be funny shocking or sexy or all three because for me it was none of the above it's especially because there's that bondage element to it right which i mean there's an eroticism that would be uh, certainly non-standard for the time, but we see in a lot of films, um, even throughout the rest of the '70s and '80s, um, at, you know, being more presented more up uh, front um, because of of kind of mainstream acceptance of that sort of thing. But that's not what really this is about. I don't think it's necessarily about bondage. I think it's about submissiveness. Um, but I do think that the movie—I don't know if it's meant to be funny. I mean, that's a really good uh, question. Liam, whether it's meant to be funny. I, I do think that he's supposed to seem somewhat sadistic because the handmaiden is very resistant to even looking at what's going on. And it is so much more extreme than anything we saw up to that point. It is really kind of unpleasant, especially because every time he throws a piece of fruit, we get a close up of Pan Lin's face, and she's. It's hard to tell if she is enjoying it or she's finding it painful. Um, but that's just, I guess that's part and parcel about the confusion that this movie provides. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I would say that is the missing element, right? Because the movie sexualizes her pain and all the women's pain such that they are never allowed to experience uh, un, uh, unambiguous pleasure, that every sex scene mm. is expressed with a feeling of, of pain. And uh, let me just be as explicit as possible here about this point. This is not unfamiliar to anyone who's ever seen, let's say, hente or any of those sure. sorts of, 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 of porn. And, and it's present in American pornography as well. This idea that the, the, the intensity of the man means that this should both be pleasant and unpleasant at the same time and that is part and parcel to sexuality which is such by the way a male focused view and a and a male a patriarchal understanding of what sex even is and so because they've made that clear the whole film all these women are so addicted to him that they can't even imagine a world without him and yet we're never shown them enjoying themselves that then when this thing is happening and the look on her face to me seems exactly the same as every other sex scene we're left to say is does she like this does she not like this is this like a is this one of those situations where she's enjoying herself but she's horrified at being exposed in this way you know what i mean like it's not clear what's going on and you have so the film has invested so little in these characters other than 
the supposed intrigue that it's hard to care exactly what's going on. It's hard to be invested and say, well, I want to figure out what the movie's trying to say. At, at this point in the film, I'm like, okay, Lord, we're, we're done here. Let's just be done. What's what's what, How are we going to wrap this whole thing up? <laughs> uh, so how this wraps up is uh, unique, if not interesting. So um, basically, once we get to the end of the movie, it's between two of the wives. It's it's Pan Chin Lin, uh, who was who uh, we spent the first half of the movie getting to know, and we watch her get seduced. And then you have Lee Pinger, who um, was uh, one of the newer wives. She has a child. The child falls off a table and dies. This happens off screen. We see someone come to her and tell her that the kid is dead, and then she dies of grief. Um, it's it, so she's out of the way at that point. So the movie ends. And please interrupt me, Liam, if I'm getting any of this wrong from your perspective. Pan Chin Lin, she goes to Shi Men Ching's room. He is like half asleep. He just isn't really paying much attention to her. Um, so, and she wants to have sex. Like that's what she's there for. He doesn't seem that interested. So she force feeds him all of, like a whole bunch of his pills, has sex with him. And because he ODs on these pills, he basically, she basically screws him to death. Yeah. It's, it's literally for, for, for me and my taste and my view was the only witty part of the film. Right. Because it's like we're 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 bringing back the boner pills. We're making sure the boner pills are Chekhov's boner pills. And and uh and uh we're you know, this is the thing and and let's be clear, there's something we haven't really talked about, but my man screws over every the, my man is about dominance. He not only does he have these seven yeah. dominated wives and the multiple housemates he also dominates, and apparently whatever other women he can find out in the open he screws over his community. He steals from people. When people die, he finds out ways to get their stuff. Like he is a parasite in every way. So the fact that the thing he seems to care the most about is the thing that kills him, I think is meant to be insightful and, and whatever. And for me, it's the only part that kind of works like, okay, that works. You set it up Mm. and you paid it off and that's fine. Yeah, there's there's at least some measure of comeuppance uh, that occurs here in the movie. Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, and this that's the thing. Like as the movie starts, and even as he's seducing this woman, he's shown as being this kind of um, not empathetic. He's he's shown as being a real dick, but not being evil necessarily, just super horny. But the second half of the movie makes clear this guy's like a gangster, right? I mean, he he is stealing money, he's putting people in jail, he's murdering people. I mean, he is a real bad dude, so he deserves to be punished in some way, and what, what better way to punish such a Lothario uh, than by having him, uh, you know, sexed to death. So that's what happens to him. Uh, we get a little voiceover at the end saying basically that you know that that he never would have expected that to happen, which I guess no one really would. Uh, but uh, we don't really get a lot of payout. But that's par for the course for a lot of Shaw Brothers movies as well. Liam O'Donnell, we got to talk about Jackie Chan, the beloved martial arts fixture. I know he has spoken about this movie in the past. He seems somewhat ashamed of it, though. I do think that they a lot of write ups about this movie. They make a lot of hay about the fact that he was in a porno movie. When this is, I mean, come on, it it. Yeah, I mean, it, look, there is there's some weird ass stuff here, but um, 
comparatively even to what was coming out in the United States, I mean, this was the era of deep throat, right? I mean, uh, sexuality was um, coming into its own in American cinemas at the time. People were going into strange and interesting places. And this this is just kind of following suit, I guess, in some way. Um, I, just think Jackie this, Chan, I just think at this point in our history, to look back at a movie like this, where you don't see a single genitalia at all, and say, like, it's a porno. It's just like, come on, guys, really? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? So Jackie plays Pear Seller, Brother Yoon. He, his is the first voice that we hear in the movie, though I don't think it's actually Jackie Chan's voice. Uh, you know, selling his wares. He's seen as mischievous. I don't know if he's supposed to have any sort of moral center or if he's just causing trouble. But at the very least, in the first half of the movie, he's the one who sees what's going on. He sees that the uh, the brothel owner is trying to help set up these two characters. And uh, I guess he's already sympathetic or friend friends with the pancake seller. So he's the one who puts the... Um, the really the death of the pancake seller into motion, though unintentionally. So he's actually a, a kind of a major part of the plot and gets a decent amount of screen time in the first half of the movie. What did you think of Jackie Chan in this movie, Liam? There's there's almost nothing to think. There's almost <laughs> nothing to think. He doesn't do any Jackie Chan stuff. You know what I mean? He's not funny, really. He doesn't do any cool physical stuff. There's no slapstick of any kind. He barely acts. You know, and, and in a way, uh, when the movie first starts and you don't have the full scope of how evil this man is, then Jackie Chan's kind of just a snitch. You're like, look at this. Yeah, yeah. Look at this snitch-ass snitch. Just snitching, just <laughs> snitching on my man who's just trying to get his rocks off. And it's only as the movie progresses that you look back and go, you know what? That Jackie Chan guy was right. He was right to snitch on this guy. This guy's the worst. Because at first... Though, in retrospect, maybe he shouldn't have snitched because snitches get stitches. Or, in his case, a funeral. Yeah, a literal funeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Like, there's just not much to the character. He's not... I, you know, I'm assuming him not being proud of the role is because of the kind of movie it is. But I, I could also see him not being proud of the role because he doesn't do much. You know, he doesn't get a chance to do a whole lot. He's not it's not that he's unimportant entirely but his impact is not what it could be and and so for me you know i like jackie chan to be doing cool stuff and be the star of the show so it it was a bit of a disappointment there is some uniqueness in seeing jackie chan as a supporting performer in a non-martial arts movie you know just as an actor and and yeah it's certainly not the image that Jackie would cultivate later in his career and still does to this day and whether that's accurate to the person he is or not I think is is something that we'll probably talk about in future episodes of this show but at the very least the image that he wants to present to the world is fairly squeaky clean and one of the kind of defining aspects of a lot of his martial arts characters in the 70s and 80s is that they're very sexless characters Right. right. I mean, th- th- these are n- these are not erotic characters. Any sort of relationships they have with women are very chaste and they're very kind of, um, you know, teenager ish. And, and there, there might be a scene where he accidentally gr- grabs a woman's breast or something like that. And then he needs to be shown to be like ashamed and uh, and, and, you know, there's some sort of comical moment made of that. But for the most part, sexuality is not really addressed in a lot of those movies. So to see him in a movie where he's surrounded by that is kind of interesting. And the character has some... <laughs> there's not, again, there's not much to it. It's just basically him yelling at this brothel uh, owner and and calling her all sorts of names while she calls him a lot of names and then him setting up that action. But it is still interesting to see Jackie Chan 
in this sort of role at this time in his life. Uh, just the very fact that he would even be offered a role like this, because we might think of him as solely a martial arts performer, but then again, his training was in all sorts of performance, including acting. So why not have him as a acting uh, piece of an ensemble like this? But um, that said, if you're seeking out the Golden Lotus for a Jackie Chan performance, I think you may end up being sorely disappointed. Yeah, there's just not a lot there to hold on to. And I, I agree with you. It is cool to see him. I wish we had more roles from him that weren't just what we come to Jackie Chan for. I, I, I don't want to limit him to either his humor or his martial arts or his combination of both. However, this is not it. Like, there's just not much there. And what's around it isn't great either. If this was a totally charming movie in which he didn't have a significant role, that would still be worth watching to me. And that's not what this is. <laughs> so uh, I guess I should ask Liam, would you recommend the golden Lotus to anybody? No, under no circumstances. <laughs> very, very kind of simple response there. Yeah. It's a rough watch. It's, it's, I do think there's some interesting, especially when you, take it as an adaptation uh, uh, of a very popular and very influential literary work. And in that context, I think there's uh, a lot to unpack here. But coming at it without any of that background, it's a, it's a real slog. It's very long. It is almost two hours, and it's it has a lot of um, dramatic elements that have aged particularly badly. And not that's not just the sexual elements, just a lot of what's on display here. Uh, it might be reflective of attitudes that you might be interested in investigating more, but for me, I can't say that I enjoy the experience very much. But that is just this movie, Liam. There's lots of Jackie Chan material to go before we get to sleep. You know, the funny thing, Liam, is that we're not just going to be watching movies. We're doing everything. Everything Jackie Chan. Isn't that exciting, Liam? Yay. So, Liam, I, uh, I don't want to uh, concern you, but we are not done with Jackie Chan and sex. <laughs> oh, no. Really? <laughs> no. In the next film featured on We Do Our Own Stunts, it's 1975's All in the Family, which is a film that features one of two sex scenes that Jackie Chan has performed in his entire career. The second one wouldn't be until Shinjuku Incident Decades and decades later, uh, but this is probably <laughs> I can feel. When your do we concern. get to the action? When do we get to the action? And I don't. It's a kind of action, and I don't mean boinking. Uh, this film is uh, back. We're going back to Golden Harvest for this film, um, and it does feature some Golden Harvest stars, including Sammo Hung, um, appearing in it. So maybe, maybe Liam, maybe it will be more to your uh, preference. But I, this I mean, is I the like movie. I like Sammo Hung a lot. Just as, as a quick quote, and we'll probably reiterate this on the next episode. This is from Jackie Chan talking about All in the Family. I had to do anything I could to make a living 31 years ago, but I don't think it's a big deal. Even Marlon Brando used to be exposed in his movies. The porn movie at that time was more conservative than the current films. And he's right. I mean, <laughs> if this movie that we watched for this episode was any indication, you know, that what was considered pornography in the mid-70s, uh, you know, the, the, the standards have, have changed pretty significantly. But... If you've ever wanted to hear two guys talk about Jackie Chan having sex, then you need to listen to our next episode on All in the Family from 1975, Liam. Yay. And soon, Liam, martial arts movies. We're getting there ever closer. Yay. <laughs> Think about how good it'll feel. This is like hitting ourselves in the head. It'll feel so good when we stop.
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, I know you have a family to get to. Where can people find out more about Cinema Smorgasbord? Uh, well, they can go ahead over to our web- website, with is cinemasmorgasbord.com. They can check us out on cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Uh, they can also find us on um, Twitter, uh, at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G, and then stop there. Don't go yeah. any further than that. Mm-hmm. That's uh, correct. Uh, they can also follow Cinepunks on um, Facebook and uh, Instagram. Uh, and then they can find you on Twitter, uh, and that's okay. That's I actually would recommend it. I usually say something snarky at this point, but I'll say Doug is a good Twitter follow. It's a pro follow. Uh, you can also, of course, follow Liam on Twitter. He is at no, Liam don't do Rules. It. Don't that's do it. R-U-L-Z, as we say here in Canada. But you can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And yeah, uh uh, pop over to Cinema Smorgasbord. Do a little uh, link there over to iTunes. Leave us a review. Uh, anything helps. Tell your friends. Uh, if you want to check out more of our podcasts over at Cinema Smorgasbord, you can find ones focused on actors like Vic Diaz, the Filipino Peter Lorre. You can find ones uh, based on uh, the careers of Steve Buscemi, Dick Miller, and there's other thematic uh, podcasts over there, including the return of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. You can find episodes over at Cinema Smorgasbord as well. But with that said, Liam, I think that's all the Jackie Chan we can handle for one day. We'll be back very soon with another Jackie Chan classic. Say goodnight. Night. Ling功夫的人就好像萬能的超人一樣 他們神乎其技的本領,能人所不能,將武術中的技巧變成為令人驚嘆的優美動作。<音樂><音樂>